Luke chapter 18, verse 15. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became became very sad, for he was extremely wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time in the age to come eternal life. And Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you um, that you're living, you're active, Lord, that your spirit is here amongst us, Lord, helping us to understand this. We pray that you would guide us now as we work our way through this text. Amen. So the other day, yesterday, I was trying to take some pictures with my phone. And I don't know if you guys have phones you can take pictures on. They're not exactly the best sort of picture-taking machines, but I was trying to get a picture of like bigger, like I needed like this much, and it was only giving me this much. And for the sake of what I was trying to accomplish, I really needed all of it. And I'm trying to step back, but if I step back, it wouldn't do it. And this is, in cameras, there's like panoramic lenses, there's zoom lenses, and you basically have to choose the lens that you're going to work with based on the picture you want to take. With the Bible, a lot of times it's easy to get very zoomed up. There's a bunch of stories that we've been going through where with the children, with the young rich ruler, with what Peter said, we could really take each one of these stories and zoom in and focus on it. But, but in the grand scheme of things where the story is, I felt like we have to kind of put on our panoramic lens and kind of get the big picture so that we don't lose track over the essence of the story of what's happening. The context really began in the previous chapter in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. <clears throat> the, this teaching of Jesus all began when we read the words in verse 20. It says, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus began responding to them. So the issue is the kingdom of God. The Pharisees wanted to know when exactly it was going to happen. They were ready for the Messiah to come. They wanted to be out from under Roman rule. They had great expectations of what the Messiah would do. And so in verses 20 through 37 in chapter 
um, 17 or the end of chapter 17, Jesus begins explaining the, the winds, not necessarily going to address when it's going to happen, but the what's it going to be like and the things that you can kind of expect. And as it comes into play, what will happen? And as that was said, the disciples were basically very heavy in their heart, kind of concerned because the things that Jesus said kind of wasn't that pleasant. It was like, this is, this is concerning to us. This is discouraging. He tells us that, that we'll long to see the Son of Man coming, but we will never see him come. And so the thing that they wanted, they, Jesus tells them from the get-go, they're not going to see it in their lifetime. And they began to get discouraged. And in chapter 18, the very first verse, Jesus begins to, to teach two parables. The first one, he told them a parable to show that, all, that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. And he goes into this discourse about prayer, which we looked at last week. The first was this, this widow with the unjust judge, that she basically nagged him and nagged him and nagged him and nagged him until he couldn't take her anymore to where she finally... He gave up and said, I'll give you justice. I will protect you. I'll do what you asked. And Jesus said this to the disciples, knowing that their lives, as, he go, as he's going to the cross, as he would leave, all of them would give their lives. They would, in, in testifying for the gospel with the exception of John. So he says, don't lose heart. Keep, keep coming after me in prayer. And then the, it, as he's talking about prayer, there's the righteous people that thought based on their own works that they were good with God. So he tells the story of the Pharisee, which was a great person in their mind. This was somebody who loved God, who had studied the scriptures, who had memorized the whole Old Testament, had devoted themselves to the things of the Lord. And then there's the tax collector who everybody hated in that culture. You didn't have to keep your word with a tax collector, a thief or a swindler or a murderer. Like you didn't have to, your word was not bound to them. They weren't allowed to give offerings in the synagogue. They couldn't go and do things. They were excluded from society. And as Jesus shared these two people praying, the Pharisee had this righteous prayer about how good he was, how he wasn't like other people, and how he tithed and did all of these stuff. And then the tax collector who sat at a distance with his eyes to the ground, beating his chest, asking God to be merciful to, me, to him. And Jesus says, that man walked away justified. And so he kind of, in the second part, starts telling about the heart condition of those entering into the kingdom. These, these people that realize that God is holy and just and righteous and that your attitude needs to see him as such. And then this, this section we're going to cover today, I've kind of in my mind, I see this as sort of like the, the visa requirements for getting into heaven. I don't know how many of you have traveled and you enter in countries. There's a lot of countries as, with a U.S. passport that you can get into with no with no visa. We're just, we're just free to go in for a short amount of time. There are other countries that is very specific. Two countries I've been to in particular that getting the visa was kind of horrifying. The first one was Saudi Arabia. As a Christian, I had to sign multiple, like I, there was like a multiple page document saying that if you bring Bibles, if you talk about anything dealing with the Christian faith, you will be executed. And then sign on the dotted line. And it's like, I'm looking at my, the guys that I work for, I'm like, are you sure this is cool? I am a Christian. And they're like, yeah, you'll be fine. Just sign it. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'll be executed if that happens, you know? And, and then China is another one, was a very difficult country to go in that you had to go through a very extensive process of, of what's your background? And I was a pastor. And they said, then I send it to them trying to be, I want to be honest. 
then the Chinese consulate people who, or the, the advocate for the Chinese consulate, they sent back my paperwork and they said, you know what? You probably don't want to put that you're a pastor. Is there any way you can do anything else? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And I called Joel. I'm like, Joel, can I go to work for you one day painting? And he's like, yeah, man, you can come paint for me. You, you know, in fact, you helped me paint your house. And that was like on the job training. So I'm like, I'm a painter. <laughs> like I paint. Like I was very generic. And they're like, okay, that's perfect. You know, don't worry. I'm like, but if they Google my name, I'm like all over the place. They're like, they're not Googling anybody's name. Just, and so, so some passport requirements to get a visa is very difficult. And in this story, I kind of see that this is like the heart condition. How do we enter the kingdom of God? Like they're discouraged. They're, they're concerned about the things. And Jesus had just told the story about, you know, this tax collector, this, this, the least of them who was by their culture was ostracized. And yet Jesus says this man, by the way he prayed in the temple, he was justified before God. And then we transition right into the story in verse 15. It says, and they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. And so that they are obviously there's parents that as Jesus is making his way down to Jerusalem, parents get word that the rabbi is there and they would want to bring their their babies to him. The, the word is a word that it's not used that often, but it could apply to like a newborn baby all the way up to like 12 years old. So there's a there's a wide range of age of these children. That's why some translations use babies, some use children, some it's a it's a broad word, but there are young people. And children in that culture, they were ex- they were the very like bottom rung of society. Maybe a widow was only below them. Like they were not accepted. And so here these parents are bringing their children to Jesus. Like, will you touch him? Will you bless them? Will you put a, you know, a, a blessing on them? Which is, I'm sure there's a Jewish word for that, that they, you know, they want the, the children to get a blessing from God. But as they're trying to approach the disciples who are following after Jesus, like missed the whole teaching that Jesus just gave about this tax collector and Pharisee, about how the least of them, that he doesn't want to restrain them. They say, oh no, kids, this is, we're grown up time is in session. This is really a bad time because Jesus is talking to the adults right now. And you guys are being interrupted. He doesn't have time for you. Like they literally begin rebuking them. Who do you think you are bringing your kids to him? This is Jesus. He's busy doing all kinds of other stuff. And you want you bring your little snotty nosed kids to have him touch them. Get out of here. Like this is rebuking. It's not like they kindly said, please don't bring your kids here. They rebuked him. But Jesus called for them. So it's almost this picture that they'd rebuked him. And the parents like, oh, well, that's a bummer. I'm going to take my kids. We'll, we'll leave. We'll go back home. And Jesus calls them back, the parents with the kids. Hey, 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 hey. These guys got a long work to do. I have, I have many more months of training to do with these guys. Why don't you guys come back with your kids? They spoke out of turn. And he said, permit the children to come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such of these. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. Like They start talking about the kingdom of God and... And, and there's scary stuff happening. When the little kids come wandering by, they send them away. Jesus says, no, the kingdom belongs to them. Like, these are owners of the kingdom. 
And he says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And so Jesus uses these children that are being brought to him as this illustration to teach the adults about the essence of the kingdom. And when I look at kids, some things I see about kids is like like kids have an uncanny ability to just love people. Like there's just a love for whoever. There's an uncanny ability to trust. Like like a child in an abusive situation with a parent will still trust that parent. I was raised in an abusive home, and this was like the big thing for me as I was growing up. Like recognizing that my trust was almost unfounded. Like, like as I got hurt by the person who hurt me, I wanted to turn to them for comfort. So children have this like total dependence of like dependence, trust, love, humility, receptiveness, just to, to, just to the truth. And we as parents need to recognize that we have so much. What's the word I'm looking for? Responsibilities, the word, like as we invest in our kids. Like you can't be hands off because they're going to be receptive to stuff. So we really have to invest in them because of all of this stuff. And, and even in this culture, see, there's something even more about kids when we leave the United States. Like one of the things I love, like when we go to Mexico and you start interacting with kids that are basically third world or yeah, third world. I always get third world and third culture kids kind of confused. Third world kids. That don't have anything. They have dirt and sticks and rocks. And there's like a certain sort of like joy about them that, that we, we lack in the United States when I look at our kids as a whole. And, and I think it's because their ability to like appreciate small stuff. And in the United States, we like start dumping all kind of video games and just excess on kids. And then they have no, no sort of contentment, no sort of, you know, enjoyment. And when I look at this story, and it might just be me, like, in the, in the, as we get to the rich ruler, like, as humans, the less we have, like, the more we tend to appreciate little things, and the more we have that, or there's the danger, at least. And so Jesus looks at these kids, and he's like, look how content they are, look how happy they are, look how loving they are. Like, they, these own the kingdom of God. And as he's saying this, this ruler who we're going to see was excessively wealthy. So we have on the other end of the spectrum, this man who has all kind of authority, all kind of wealth. asked Jesus a question. And in verse 18, we read as a ruler questioned him. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Seems like a totally innocent, innocuous question. Like he's about to get jumped on by Jesus because Jesus knows his heart in the behind the scenes. He says, well, what do I have to do? Like, do I have to buy the kingdom? Do I have to like, like, what do I have to do in order to achieve the kingdom? And he uses the phrase good teacher, which doesn't even stand out to you. If you just read it, it's like, oh, good teacher. And all of a sudden, Jesus responds to him in verse 19. Why do you call me good? It's like, uh oh, this guy's in trouble already. Like. Doesn't seem like a big deal. He just says, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? 
And so we don't know. There's a lot of speculation. Is this, is this flattery on the part of the guy? Or is the guy just carelessly using words? You know, there are people who are wordsmiths. There are people who, like, love words. Dan Kidder, who is at our church, he's one of these guys. Like, when I, like I did their premarital counseling, and, and often, like, they have openly talked about, like Kelly says, yeah, when I first met Dan, he said, if I say something, it's exactly what I mean. I've thought it through. I've thought each word that I say. Like, he does not just carelessly throw out words. He's a writer, and so words have meaning to him. And I, I, one time I said, yeah, I'm really convicted. Like, I've really been trying to be careful at what I say. Like, every now and again, when I listen to what I say, I'm like, man, I totally missed, like, three whole words in that sense. They were in my brain, but they didn't make it to my mouth. Or I think one thing and another thing comes out. Like, that's really bad. And then Dan, he's like, yeah, I've noticed you've been trying to be better with your words. Like that you've, and I'm like, wow, really? You really noticed that? As a, he's like, yeah, it really kind of bugs me sometimes when I, know, I can hear you thinking the word, but you don't say it, and then it doesn't mean the same thing. And we use words so carelessly. How do we use love in our culture? I used to say I love in and out Now it's five guys. <laughs> like I would say that it's like I use the word love. For a burger, which I do, I do really like. I mean, I really strongly like burgers. <laughs> but then I'll look and I'll say to my wife, well, I love you. So is that saying that my feeling that I have is the same for a Five Guys burger as is for my wife and my children? Like we, use these, like we really probably shouldn't say, oh, I love food. We probably should have a whole other category of word. And so I don't know if Jesus is, I think Jesus is sort of challenging him in this use of this word. That this guy either is trying to flatter Jesus or he's just not thinking about what he's saying. So Jesus is saying, hold on. Think about what you just said. Why do you call me good? And I could see this guy going, uh, <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I just said good. Um, and then Jesus continues and he says, no one is good except God alone. This is a phrase that I want to kind of remove. Like this is some who don't think that Jesus is God will use this as a proof text to say Jesus never claimed to be God. In fact, he denied being God. So that's something we have to work through. In the context of the story, see, if we get so focused in, a lot of times, especially when people are using the Bible to like argue in an argument, nine times out of ten, you're going to get into trouble because with the Bible, we can't just cut and paste verses to make our case. You can make the Bible say whatever you want. And sometimes when you're so focused in and all you see is Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. Well, we lose even like the panoramic view, because if we back up, remember before the Pharisees came and asked about the kingdom of God, what happened that started this whole section? There were 10 lepers. He healed them. One came back. Jesus says, what, only one of you came back to give glory to God? And he's accepting this worship that's very different from how Barnabas and I think it was Barnabas and Paul in Acts. When they worshiped Paul and Barnabas as God after healing somebody, Paul like tore his clothes and said, stop, I'm just a man. Don't worship me. Well, Jesus doesn't stop any of that. And then if Jesus was denying his deity... There would be no evidence going forward by the disciples or the apostles who were here 
giving him credit for being God. A couple of verses, we're going to flip through the Bible, the three different spots here to Romans, Corinthians, and Hebrews, just to kind of look at what some of the early church said. So in Romans chapter 3, we'll start at verse 21. So in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul from Corinth, he is writing a legal case to the Christians that are in Rome. And in the first three chapters, he's showing basically that every single human being is in trouble with God. And in verse 21, we kind of wrap up this section. It says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all. All means all, everyone. There's no loop. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul, when he's writing, he says, every single human that's ever lived has fallen short of the glory of God. If you go from that section over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is Paul again writing. Paul is already clearly established uh, along with, uh, I mean, there's so many places in the Bible that make it clear that no human is without sin. We all miss the mark. We all fall short of the glory of God. And that puts us into great trouble when it comes to us standing before God. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we'll, start, we'll kind of start with this, the sentence back here. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him... That's Jesus, who knew no sin. How much sin did Jesus have? No sin. He knew no, he was without sin totally and completely. He who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that Jesus, by going to the cross, which the story we're looking at today, he's heading towards the cross. The very end of this passage, which we'll look at next week, Jesus basically says, I'm going, I'm going to die. I'm going to, be cru- I'm going to be laid in the grave. I'm going to rise from the grave. They didn't have a clue what he was talking about. But here we said that the reason that he did it, he was without sin. He was punished for our sin. And in faith in him, we basically get a credit. We get his righteousness credited to our account. So if you'll turn, keep going towards the back of the Bible and you'll come to Hebrews. It's kind of after Timothy. And in Hebrews 4.15, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Someone who was very skilled in the Old Testament law, who had a handle on the law and the priesthood. And there, we'll start in verse 14. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. See, that's a beautiful, I have this so highlighted. There is nothing in your life, no temptation, no struggle that you've been through that Jesus hasn't experienced on his own. See, being tempted isn't a sin. It's how you respond to temptation that may be sinful. And I stopped just shy. It says he's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That he was totally and completely without sin. 
Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so the authors of the New Testament make it very clear those that God inspired to write the Bible clearly make a strong case that Jesus is indeed God. And so then it begs the question back in Luke chapter 18, when Jesus responds to this man, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Like, why does he say that? Is he trying to make himself distinct from God? Or is he basically trying to stop this man, this rich man, who he knows is about to ask him a question, is about to ask him for advice, and yet then he's going to basically reject what he says. And I think that Jesus is saying, listen, hold up. No one's good except for God. And I think he's implying that he indeed is God. And so if you're calling me good, he doesn't say, okay, you, re- you refer to me as good teacher. And when you use that word good, that word is exclusively used for God. So now that you know what you're asking, I just want to make it clear. You want to know what you need to do to get eternal life? Well, I'll tell you what you need to do. And in the Old Testament, that we see, we often refer to the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. I mean, they're, they're really 613 commands upon the Jewish people in the Old Testament. The, the Ten Commandments kind of summarize all of them. And so then Jesus then tells this guy, okay, you want to know what to do for eternal life? Do these things. You, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. All of these things. Like Jesus took the law and he, he's going to later, he's going to up the ante. You know, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Oh, he totally takes the law, the spirit of the law, and shows how the law condemns us. The law doesn't save anybody. All it does is it exposes our need for a savior. And Jesus looks at him and says, you know the commandments. And he also knows this guy's heart. I don't know any of us that if Jesus walked in the room and just said, honor your father and mother, we'll just start with that one. Because that one's probably the hardest one in all of these. Like in your whole life, that one's a pretty hard one to keep. If that was the only commandment, because that whole from like two years to about, you know, 25, those are tough years for, for maintaining that one perfectly. But then he adds all these other ones. But see, his response, all these things I've kept from my youth. I've kept all these things from my youth. Paul, the apostle, a Pharisee, I believe that his conversion was coming to understand that he was a sinner. Because before his conversions, he boldly, thought that when he died, he could stand before God and say, I'm blameless. He tells us in Philippians chapter 3 that according to the law, I was blameless. I maintained the law perfectly. And Jesus knew that this guy would respond that way. And so when Jesus heard this in verse 22, he said to him, one thing you still lack. When I looked at this, I had to kind of Google, I had to kind of Google it on YouTube because a lot of times there's movies I liked a lot before my like converted days. And I think they're great movies. And I go watch. And I'm like, man, there's like a lot of profanity in that. Who knew there was so much profanity in that? 
And well, one of the movies, there was a little bit of profanity, so I'm not endorsing this movie per se, because... But if you could screen it out, I still think it's a pretty funny movie. But City Slickers, I, I, when it came out, I, was a, I worked in a movie theater. And so there's a guy, Curly, the old cowboy. And he like, to Billy Crystal or whatever his name is, he's like, there's just one thing, you know, the secret to life. And the guy dies and Billy Crystal never gets the secret to life. Well, as I'm studying this text, that scene for some reason kept coming to my mind. There's just one thing that you lack. Is it Nor- Curly? No, Norman Cal, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, he discovered it, yeah. <laughs> Jesus isn't talking about Norman. But the reason I thought about this is that Jesus doesn't ever hear tell him exactly what the one thing is. He, he, he alludes to something that kind of gives us an idea. He says there's one thing you lack. And then he says, sell all your possessions and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. See, that's a command to do something. That's not necessarily that you lack something and say, this is what you lack. And as I ponder this and I look at the two stories of the children and the rich ruler, the one thing I think that the guy lacked is dependence upon God. He had total dependence on himself and his own wealth and security. Now, so he tells them, basically, sell everything you have, distribute it to the wealth, come and follow me. And if you do this, you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, let's go back to how this guy addressed Jesus. He comes up to him and he says, good teacher. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Like, I want you to know, don't, you use this word casually, but I want you to understand who you're talking to because I'm about to tell you something. And how are you going to respond to it? I can't tell you how many times I get calls from young kids and I've noticed that my, my term for young kids, the age is growing and growing. It's going higher and higher and higher. And my definition for young is getting older and older and older. And these young kids will come to me and they want to know about SEAL training or they want to know about the whole program. And I'll begin telling them about what they need to do and they'll look at me and they say, I don't really buy into that. I watched a movie and I think that I think I'm probably, you know, I don't need to do that. And I'm like, um, okay, you, you recognize I was a SEAL for 12 years. I was a first phase instructor. I, I, you know, basically sat with kids that didn't make it through, like thousands of kids that didn't make it through the program. And you're basically, you came to ask me advice. There's very few people that can give you the inside scoop. I told you what the reality is, and you basically are blowing me off because you think you know better. This is essentially what's happening in this story. Jesus makes it very clear who he is. But then the guy looks at him in verse 23, and he said, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So basically, he wants to know how to have eternal life. He wants to be able to do something. Maybe build a new synagogue or do, do something more that he had within his authority that he could still keep his prominence. And Jesus says, the one thing that you need to do is you're so, your God is your money and on your own ability. And so what you need to do is to get rid of all of that stuff so that you humble yourself and you become like a child and you follow after me. And the guy can't do it. And I think that's why Jesus started with this implication is because 
Jesus is God. This guy came to him. He gives him the instruction and then the guy basically ignores him. And then the question for us is, we call Jesus Lord, or the majority of us do, we as a church do, what you may be on your own journey of coming to the, to the Lord. We come to Jesus, I accept, I accept him as Savior, I accept him as the Lord, he's God, the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. Very clearly, he's made very instructions about behavior and things I should do. And yet, in many ways, I'm like this rich young ruler, and I ignore what he has to say. And so I don't know about you, but how, how are you, and it's, this is not a, like for you to speak out, but it's something for us all to pray and consider. How are we like this rich young ruler where Jesus has spoken into our lives and we've, re, we've rejected him? And then Jesus says in verse 24, he looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, what my, my previous thought is, wealth is not something that excludes somebody from heaven at all. Wealth is an innate, inert object, it's, but it reveals the condition of our heart. On the next page of my Bible, it may be even on the same page of your Bible, we're going to read about Zacchaeus. If you were a kid, you would know Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little... Like, he was a tax collector, he was hated by the people. Some of, most of us think that he was in the tree because he was short. Others have suggested he's really in the tree because he was so hated that he didn't want to get in trouble. He was extremely wealthy. So wealthy that he could have a big old party for everybody to come over. He could look Jesus in the eye and said, you know what? I'm going to give half of everything I have away. And anybody that I've wronged, I'm going to pay them back like three or four times. And he would still have plenty of wealth. And he's fine in the kingdom. It's not the money, it's the heart. And Jesus says how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Bach, a theologian that I like a lot, he says this, wealth can shrink the door of the kingdom down to an impassable people. So that wealth has the danger for us all. And if you're alive in the United States in this day, if you're the very poor person, we are in the wealthiest 1% of all human history. And then Jesus goes on to say, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There's a lot of theories on this. Oh, well, when you enter the city gate, there's a small hole and... For a camel to go through that hole, they were, maybe they referred to that as the eye of the needle, and then the camel would have to get down like on a knee, and then he'd have to like throw one leg over, and then he'd have to do this. And... <laughs> There's all kinds of theories. But, but, but we miss Jesus, I think, was a hilarious teacher. He used comedy and picture. Like earlier when Rick talked, when I got sick that week and we talked about this mulberry tree, I think there was a mulberry tree. And he went up and said, this mulberry tree. And he starts touching stuff. And, you know, they sewed stuff. They had needles. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. Like in le- the only way I figured out that you might be able to do it, I still don't think you'd be able to do it, is if you blendered up a big old camel and then you, you had like a funnel but the hole would be so small that I don't even think you could get the chunks through it. Like, I don't think you could get water through an eye of a needle. 
Like it, it would, it's impossible. And the reason he did this was shock value. Because he wants all of us to be horrified at hearing this. And listen how they reacted. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? Now, I've been thinking about this. Were they thinking, were all of them at that level of wealth that that rich man was? Well, no, that's not the case. We know who the disciples were. None of this guy was on the, the, uh, this guy was like the Bill Gates or maybe not the Bill Gates, but maybe in the top 1,000 richest people in Jerusalem. Like he definitely had a lot of money. Or do they all consider themselves wealthy and think they were all being excluded? But the more I studied and the more I dug, the, the more I came to learn that their culture viewed money, that if somebody was blessed financially, that was a clear indication that God had put his blessing upon you and that you would be then welcomed, like you would be, because God was so thankful or grateful for you that he poured out blessing upon you. Now that's, that, I don't think that's the case in our culture so much. Like, we don't necessarily think rich person. We don't have the spiritual side in our culture to think that, oh, God must have really blessed that person. Somebody wins the lotto, they might say, oh, thank God that I won the lotto. But there's, no, there's real no depth to the thought of God's connection. I mean, it's just something we say. Like, the lucky rabbit's foot gave me a million dollars. But from their understanding, they understood wealth to be connected to God's direct hand on that person. And if these were people that God was blessing and they can't enter, well, what about us that don't have anything and we haven't been blessed by God? What does that say to us? And that they clearly connect this to like salvation. Like they're talking about the kingdom of God, but they're talking about spiritual salvation how do we enter in like that the two are directly connected and then jesus responds in verse 27 and he said the things that are impossible with people are possible with god he says salvation getting right with god is totally impossible for humanity there is absolutely nothing that you can do if you try to do a bunch of good stuff for the sake of getting right with God, all it's going to show you is how bad you are. Jesus is saying this as he's going to the cross where he is going to do the act that we cannot do. And as he starts pointing to God, Peter, like, I, to be honest, I, at this point, I still don't, I don't quite get what Peter says, like his heart, like trying to read his emotion behind this. The second service might get it because some of you might come up and talk to me and then my brain will kind of. But in the midst of this, Peter like blurts out, behold, we have left our homes and followed you. Like, is he saying, well, well, we gave up everything. We did something. We did what that rich ruler did it do? Are we good to go? Or are we like discouraged that like, well, we gave up everything and now we're following you, but that was not for, for, for all for nothing. Now, I don't know that Peter actually like sold his fishing business and like got rid of, he definitely walked away from it. But after Jesus was crucified, he goes back to fishing. So he still had the family business, but he definitely left his vocations following after Jesus as a rabbi. And he says, well, we left everything. Are we good? Like, 
with, with Peter's track record of his mouth, I believe there's something funny here, but I don't know what it is. But he just kind of, we left everything. He didn't do it. So are we good? Like, did we do, like, did we do the works that we're supposed to do? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children. Now, I'm not, I don't think, like, don't, don't be the person that leaves your family and said, God told me to abandon my wife and kids. There are people out there that do this. It makes me want to run through a wall. Like, I guarantee you, God did not call you to abandon your whole family to go start up an online business or do there's like the I could fill in the blank with wacky stuff of real things that I've heard. But what he's saying is that you put the kingdom first, that you put the things of God first, that with your families, that your love for God and obeying him and honoring him far exceeds the love for these relationships that are like the most intimate and most valuable. Like not everybody has the money that the rich ruler had, but but we all have brothers, we parent, we all have parents, children. These these are the most intimate and most important relationships that we have. And Jesus is saying, Don't turn those into God. Love me more. And he says, I tell you, um, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. This phrasing is kind of weird. And as I've thought about this, my father-in-law comes to mind. I'm trying to think of the, my father-in-law is the most trusting person that I know. To a point that we tease him. There was a few years ago that my mother-in-law and him went downtown for something. And we were all kind of at their house, and they came back. My mother-in-law is very much wired like me, where a word I invented is uh, pessimistic. Is that a real word, or is that my word? What? Skeptimistic is my word. I'm skeptical, and I'm a pessimist. So skeptimistic, the two words together. So they came back, and she's shaking her head. I can't believe him. Well, what happened? We went out to eat. We were walking back to our car, and there was a guy came up to us and said he's from Canada. He locked his keys in his car. He ran out of gas, and if he had 20 bucks, it would help everything. So my father-in-law whips out 20 bucks, says, there you go. And we're like, John, that guy was such a scam artist. And he's like, no, 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 no. He really was legitimate. And, and as he's talking, my mother-in-law shaking her head going, I don't know what to think of this. I don't know, you know. I love him a lot. This is him. This is what he's been for the last 30 years, and he'll keep being this way. And, uh, and I think it was the next night. Somebody else was downtown. They said, yeah, that's it. Or maybe it was like a month later. Same guy from Canada, same story, still stuck in San Diego trying to raise money. And my father-in-law's response was, in this whole discussion, is he said, you know what I've learned long ago, that, that I can do something. And if my intention is to honor God, like when somebody comes to ask for money and I give them money, like the issues between me and God, that I want to honor God, I want to show God that I care. And, and even if that person doesn't do what they tell me I'm going to do, I believe that God will still bless me. And, and not necessarily monetarily, but will take care of me and will reward me in a way because my heart is right with him. I'm like, oh, there's such a good principle. And he says, my father was the same one. Like if you need to borrow money from him, he'll only loan money if he has no expectation of getting it back because he doesn't want to damage any relationships. 
And so what I think Jesus is saying to Peter, saying, listen, if you step out by faith and you are living for me and you do these things for the sake of the kingdom of God, God's going to take care of you and you'll be blessed in this life and in the one to come. And I think that that's a principle for us in the story. When we look at the two stories, the kids, the rich ruler, then their kind of fear about how to get to heaven. In all of this, in the big picture of things, I think the lesson that Jesus wants us to see, because we'll see, I'll skip ahead, just a little preview of next week. After he says this, look what he says in verse 31. He said, then he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the, and the third day, he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. They did not comprehend the things which were said. Jesus, they're getting close. You'll notice I've zoomed in the map so we can get closer to Jerusalem. They're getting very close. Jesus is going to the cross. He tells them. And what he wants from his followers is he wants us to be like kids with him. I am, and I am not of the opinion of like, well, just, just, be, just kind of take it by faith. Don't do your research. Because I truly believe that when we look at the evidence of Jesus and who he is at the scripture at large, there is overwhelming evidence for who Jesus is. But there's no way to bridge the gap apart from faith of trusting in who Jesus is. And he wants us to be like kids in our dependence and our love for him and our trust in him. And it's so easy. Like that whole, it's difficult for the wealthy to inherit the kingdom of God. What that should do to all of us, we all need to realize that we're wealthy. Don't sit here and think that this, when Jesus says that, he's not talking to you. He's talking to the guy that makes over $250,000 a year or whatever like the breaking point is for whoever's. Don't think that way. Think he's talking to me. Like if you have a bathroom with water inside of your house that has both hot and cold water, you are so rich. You are undescribably wealthy. And Jesus wants us to recognize this stuff. And I think what he wants us to have is open hands. Lord, if you take this away, I'm still going to worship you. And I, you can have all that stuff. You could have a mansion with three swimming pools, a basketball court, and a bowling alley, and like a rock climbing wall. I guess that's my dream. I don't know. <laughs> but you could still have open hands, and your heart is, Lord, you're so good. You've blessed me. I want to honor you with the stuff. Your God, the stuff is not God. Only God is worthy of our worship. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you for Christ. And Father, when we look at the story between the children coming to Jesus and this rich ruler, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what it means to our life, Lord. Lord, we might be going through hard times financially. We might have difficulties in our life. But Lord, in the grand scheme of human history, we are so blessed. And Lord, I confess it's so easy to put my trust in um, 
finances and insurance plans and and all of the safety nets that we kind of put in place, Lord, that we would be okay. Father, help us to to ultimately put our trust in you, to know that you are the greatest insurance plan of all, that you are the living God who cares for us. Father, whether we have little or much, Lord, may we give you all the glory in our lives. Father, I pray for those that are journeying in their relationship with you. Um, Maybe they haven't accepted you as Savior, Lord. I pray that you would help them, Lord, to connect the dots by faith, um, to establish a relationship with Christ. And for those that have trusted in you as Savior, Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, help us to walk with you, Lord. Help us uh, to see the things in our life, Lord, that we deny you like the rich ruler, that we call you good teacher, yet we don't respond to your commands in our life. Father, we do love you and praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.